Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Nico. Uh, my name is Sam Buckmeyer, and I'm the uh, pastoral intern uh, here at Southside Church. And today, we're going to be talking about the tension we feel when we take a risk. Uh, we've been in this series called Water Walking, uh, where we've been taking a look at the story of Jesus walking on the water, and in the middle of a storm, Peter getting out of a boat to go join him. You know, that takes a lot of faith and a pretty big risk taker to do something like that, to go out of the boat and go where Jesus said to go. You know, he said, come. Now, uh, we come to a part in the series where we need to ask a really important question. What boat do I need to climb out of? You know, if Peter climbed out of a boat, what boat do you need to climb out of? What boat maybe together do we need to climb out of? You know, what do I need to give up to go be where Jesus is? What might you be called to let go of, to surrender, to go be where Jesus is working and walking? Together, what do we need to surrender, to let go of, to go where Jesus is calling us to go as a church? But before we really answer that question, we need to understand the tension we face uh, when we take a risk. I experience risk all the time in my life, and I bet actually you do as well. The problem is, though, we don't always see risk as it is because it's actually really normal for us. You guys handle a lot of risk in your life. And we experienced it actually this morning uh, when we got in a vehicle. Did everyone get in a vehicle to come here? Just a quick raise of hands. No? Have you guys walked? I didn't think this was a like, neighborhood church. Yeah, we all got in vehicles to come here. Uh, and getting in a vehicle, being on the road, is a risk, and it's a risk you take, and we actually continue to take all the time. I mean, you guys know there's hazards all over the place. There's other moving vehicles. There's parked vehicles. There's road conditions. It was a little slippery this morning. I mean, we live in Wisconsin. There's snow. There's ice. It's fog. It's going to be sometimes da- dangerous to drive. And then we add our own risks by sometimes, you know, speeding, tailgating, eating a taco and driving with our knees. I mean, there's, you know, stuff we do that kind of adds and that kind of, you know, more and more. And they can add up, you know, to accidents, tickets, and things like that. And sometimes our emotions get involved, like when there's a slow driver in my left lane, you know, my anger can flare up from time to time, you know. And you don't even need to be part, you don't need to be driving to be part of that risk. You just got to be in the vehicle, and you can participate in all these things. It's really great. Uh, and then there's risk. I deal with risk at my job. Uh, I'm a journeyman electrician. Uh, that, no, that might shock you for those who didn't know. But uh, yeah, I deal with risk at my job. Uh, number one, I mean, electricity. It does not feel great to get zapped. I can, I can testify to that. But then I have deal with power tools, which is really fun to use, but you know, it has potential to cut, hurt myself, get something in my eye. Couldn't go that great. Uh, I can fall off uh, ladders. I'm on ladders almost all the time and heights and lifts and platforms. That's a hazard that I deal with at my workplace. And then I deal with other uh, workers. Uh, you know, you never know if someone's not paying attention. They might drop something on your face. You've got to be weary of what other people are doing. And then there's a risk that I deal with all the time at my job. And actually, I bet you deal with it at your job, and that is, like, miscommunication. I mean, I don't know what you guys do for a living, all of you, but does anyone experience just a little miscommunication this week at work? Just a little bit, right? And they lead to some of the most biggest frustrations, uh, mistakes, and sometimes hurt that can take place, uh, either for you 
uh, your coworkers, the company, product, or your customers, any number of those things can take place when miscommunication happens. And that's a risk you engage with every single time you kind of enter your workspace or start engage with work. Now, risk is all over the relationships in our lives. You know, I love my wife, Amber. She's my best friend. I love spending time with her. You know, it's great, but we are real, honest, and, like, vulnerable with each other. But with that, when you're real and honest and, you know, vulnerable with each other, they get to know things that could be hurtful or even potentially dangerous for some people to know about you. I mean, I know I'm not the only one who's experienced this. If you've been in any kind of relationship, uh, dating, engaged, married, however many years, you know as soon as a disagreement starts that it's real easy for the gloves to come off and you're going to hit them right where you know it's going to hurt. And you kind of expect them to do the same thing back. We get, we get really outraged when they do. And we say the stuff like, how dare you bring that up? You know, why did you really call me that? And you, you know I hate it when you say those things. That happens all the time when, in our disagreements. Uh, but, I mean, and if you've been through so many fights, I probably just remembered and triggered all those bad memories, emotions that you've been through because you now remember paying the cost of that risk you took when you got into that relationship. And this type of risk isn't just limited to like romantic relationships. This happens between friends, parent to kid, kid to parent, coworkers. I mean, you name it, cousins, siblings, all that stuff. We all know someone who's out there trying to live uh, a life and do all these great things and achieve great goals so they can earn their parents' love, you know, because that relationship has been broken and they're trying to fix it. And if you don't know someone who's doing that, I'm sorry I had to be the, me, the one to tell you that might be you. But, you know, they're trying on their own to fix the situation. And, uh, or let's reverse roles. You know, I haven't been a parent that long. My oldest isn't even two yet. But there's still moments where it can feel like I fail as a parent. And that can really hurt seeing the choices he makes. You know, being a parent is a risk you take now because not only do you deal with your mask and the risk you manage, now you deal with the kids' risks that they take and you have to manage that. Uh, And honestly, we could go on and on about every human dynamic and relationship you actually face in your daily walk, but that's way more time than I'm actually allowed to go. So actually, I'm going to ask you a question then. Do you feel the risk you face? Do you feel the weight of it? Do you feel the weight of your everyday relationships that you engage in with people? Did you feel risky getting a vehicle this morning and driving here? You know, probably not. And that is because time erodes awareness. Time erodes awareness. The more familiar you are with the situation, task at hand, whatever you're engaging with, the less it's going to lose its intensity. The more time you spend with something, the less your brain actually is going to worry about it, and it becomes normal for you. And so, I mean, if you can remember way back when, for some of you, when the first time you learned to drive a car, I bet you were pretty nervous. Or the first time you started your new job, you were pretty nervous because you wanted to do, you know, make a first good impression. Same thing with your friendships and relationships. The first time you engaged learning how to make friends as a little kid, I mean, how, how many times do you see a little kid get all shy as they try and learn how to make new friends, right? It's hard for them. I bet some of, I raised, you know, you're still nervous trying to make new friends, right? Because of some of the experiences you have had and past friendships and relationships, you know the risk you are now engaging in when you do that. And that's a big one. And uh, you could be like me. I'm an Enneagram 8. I want to be tough and bold and brave. Like, that's what energizes me. And I can put on a tough face. But ultimately... When we take a risk, it's intimidating because you're calculating the cost of what you're doing. 
And that's why in this series, we've defined a risk taker as this, as someone who is willing to do things that involve danger, uh, involve danger of risk in order to achieve a goal. So all of us, on some level, you guys are risk takers. We've all ridden or driven vehicles. Uh, most of us have had jobs, and all of us have human relationships that we engage with between parents, siblings, coworkers, friends. I mean, you name it. You all engage with this all the time. And those things have goals that come with it, right? You get in a car, you're trying to get to a destination. Uh, you have a job, you're trying to earn an income, make money, and be a productive human being. If you're looking for a friendship relationship, you're looking for a belonging, uh, feeling loved and acceptance. And all those come with risks, right? The uh, car, accidents, a job, potentially not go great. Um, and then uh, you're just not productive and you lose a sense of purpose. And relationships, now you could feel isolated, alone, and rejected. Those are some of the, like, the biggest risks that you can take as an individual human being. Now, though, what are some of the risks, though, that you take when we take a risk as a group? I and mean, when a group of people takes the risks, what does that look like? Because that's what we're ultimately doing as a church. Uh, we find actually a story of people taking a risk together in the book of Exodus. And these people are God's chosen people, the Israelites. Now, the Israelites are leaving Egypt. They're being led by a guy named Moses. Now, this is the most, more famous story in the Christian world. If you've been in a church any kind of time, you know this story of what's about to take place. So let me uh, just summarize what's going on so we can kind of get into the feel of what's happening and to the world the Israelites are living in. So uh, uh, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, right? But their time there has come to an end. So God raised up this guy, Moses, to lead his people out of slavery and go into the promised land. So far, so Moses now goes to Pharaoh and says, oh, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh baby, let your people go. You know, famous story, they write songs about this, I'm not kidding, it's all over the place. Um, but of course, you know, why would you let your slaves walk away free? So Pharaoh said, let me think about it, No. And then we get the story of the plagues of Egypt, which does not go great for the Egyptians. And so Pharaoh finally said, leave. They do. The Israelites follow Moses into the desert, and they come up against the Red Sea. And they turn around, and they see Pharaoh's army marching towards them because somebody changed their mind on letting the slaves walk away free. So the Israelites now are afraid, almost full-on panic mode. I mean, they believe they're going to die, and they start yelling and blaming Moses for the situation that's at hand. And this is where we're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 14, starting at verse 13. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you need only be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now, 
the story finishes just like God said uh, in that text. He told uh, Moses to, you know, hand raise staff, waters parted, and there was dry land. And the Israelites crossed over to the other side to safety. And then the, oh, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, baby, you know, where did your army go? Because they did exactly like God said he was going to do. They fouled the Israelites into the Red Sea, and then they were swallowed up when the walls came down around them. And they were gone, and they did not see those Egyptians again, just like God said. Now, that's a really amazing story. And the Israelites, now on safe side, uh, safe side of the Red Sea, praised God and gave him the glory, just like God said he would be given. I mean, that's a really incredible story. And actually, one we're talking about, thousands of years later, we're still talking about this. I mean, the Bible is full of these stories, and you should really read it for yourself. It will amaze you with how fantastic the things you find in here. So the Israelites had a choice, though, at a certain point, a certain part in the story to take a risk. But if I'm really honest, they were taking risks ever since Moses showed up and said, God said we're leaving, and they followed Moses. But there was a specific time they faced uh, a really risky decision, and that was on, right next to the Red Sea where they had a choice. They could face Pharaoh's army, be killed or taken back to Egypt, or they could walk in between two huge walls of water all, that came out of nowhere away from them and onto the other side. You know, since we know the end of the story, it's going to be really easy to us to say, yeah, I'm in. We'd be the first ones to, like, hit the ground running. You know, I want to touch the wall. You know, we'd be all be like, ooh, this is fun. But I really don't think the Israelites were thinking that. Um, we got to f- see what they were going through. Let's go from their perspective real quick. Here you are. You're just an average person in the world. You're a laborer. You and your people are slave. Really, it's the world superpower at the time. And you live really simple lives. Uh, this Moses guy shows up and says, God says we're leaving. Uh, and then a really bunch of weird, sta- weird stuff happens. There's like bugs and then stuff's blood now and then an angel of death that's killing every firstborn except for the blood of a lamb on a door. I mean, what was that about? And now all of a sudden Pharaoh says, you can go. So you follow this Moses dude through the desert up against the Red Sea where you turn around and you see Pharaoh's army coming towards you. You do the math equation, and it doesn't look good for you. Numbers are pretty slim. And now, tired from the march, really angry and frustrated with leadership, everybody's in full panic mode like they're going to die. And now out of nowhere, two walls of water open up in the dry land across the sea. I mean, do you think it'd been real easy to just hop on in and go, let's just do it. You know, every Israelite had to make a calculated decision to step in between those two walls of water to cross to the other side. One person at a time had to put some thought into this. You know, some longer than others probably, but one at a time they decided to move their feet across to the other side. The first step was trusting God. For any action, you actually trust God. Either choose to be still or move. And like the Israelites uh, walked across the sea between two walls of water, they, they, they took that one more risk. They took that one more, I'm still going to trust God. I'm still going to trust. I'm still going to trust Him. And that's why it really starts in you. It starts when you start trusting in Him. 
before it gets really projected outward. What you believe always starts in you, and then it gets projected outward. That's why I love the axiom, what God does through you, he does in you first. If you want to see God move in the world, which I know all of you guys want to, but if you want to see God move in the world, he's actually got to move some things in your life. If you want to see revival in your family, he's got to do some revival in your heart. If you want to see people's faith grow, God's going to grow your faith first. If you want to see a church of water walkers, you're going to need to walk on water first. The change in your world really starts with letting God do change in you. And so Peter got out of a boat and it radically changed his life. What do you need to get out of so God can do radically change in you and bring radical change then to the world? So this kind of happened to me. Um, a couple weeks ago, July 23rd, Michaela Joy Buckmeyer was born. She was a beautiful 8-pound, 13-ounce baby, and we love her so much. But on July 24th, a day later, my wife was taken into an operating room um, for a surgery. You see, she had been at the, when she arrived at the hospital, her blood levels were at a 31. After delivery, down to a 24. By that night, she was down to an 18. By morning, 13, and still declining. And the doctors and medical staff did not know why she was losing so much blood. So at this point, I'm not doing great, going to be honest. Over a 24-hour period, I watched my wife uh, lose in color and in strength. Um, and at that point, um, I did the only thing I felt called to do, which was surrender the situation to God to surrender my wife to God because I knew and I know that God loves her more than I could. Um, and I could carry, I could worry, I could carry the weight of the situation and pray hard that God would just fix the situation, but that, that wasn't what he was calling me to do. He was calling me to surrender it. Um, and I could put on a tough face, but I didn't, you know, because if I did and just pretended it was all okay, I would have been eaten alive. So I had to get out of that boat of worry because, and surrender to Jesus, and I had to go walk where he was. You know, so after her CT surgery, CT scan, blood test, the doctors and medical staff didn't find any problems, or they didn't really find any answers to what happened. The bleeding had stopped, and five units of blood later, uh, my wife was a lot more colorful and on the mend. And two days later, we were able to take our precious little daughter home. And I still believe... God is good, and I'm giving him the glory through it all. Uh, and I'm really grateful I got out of that boat of worry. And really, what I got out of was more an accurate description. I would call it a fear of losing my wife, because that's ultimately what it was. I was afraid to lose my wife. But, I mean, there was nothing I could do to save her. So I surrendered the situation to the one that was holding me and to the one who was holding her already. But this is where I ask the, what comes important. If you never ask the question... What do I need to get out of? What do I need to let go of? What do I need to surrender so I can go be where Jesus is? You know, what boat is holding me back? You know, I might have been stuck in that place, afraid of losing my wife, and I would have been eaten alive by it. And I would have been deprived of the spirit of peace that came when I did. And so Sam got out of the boat. The name of that boat was afraid of losing his wife. And now, if your boat had a name what would it be? Would it be in relational? Would it be that thing you know you need to work on in your marriage? Would it be about forgiving your parents? 
would it be about apologizing first to your friends or friend when something has happened? Would it be where you have put your time, energy, and focus? You know, the social media, binge-watching Netflix, you know, you lost sports, that's not really happening, so Jesus took that boat away from you already. But, I mean, I have a simple challenge for you guys that's going to bring whatever boat you are in right into the light. Because uh, each of us is going to be different, and some of us is going to be tricky to try and see and understand. And my challenge for you is to go to someone that loves you, cares about you, has your best interest at heart. I mean, that probably is going to be your spouse, a parent, a close friend, somebody like that. And ask the question, hey, what boat do I need to get out of? You've known me a long time. What's something I need to work on? What's something I need to do? Uh, we've been married for X amount of years. What is something I finally need to surrender? And the thing is, though, you actually probably, probably already know the answer. But when they tell you this, this is going to surprise you. And it's going to feel really heavy. Because ultimately, you forgot the weight of it. Remember when I told you before, time erodes your awareness. Time erodes awareness. And the longer you've been in that boat, the less of it you'll really feel. Oh, it'll still be there holding you back, but you just won't notice it as much or really if at all anymore. It's become so normal for you in your life. And that is why it's become so critical to ask that question to someone who cares about us and do that because they don't live our life. They are not you. Their awareness and their uh, sharpness of this situation is so much more than yours is because time hasn't eroded their awareness of it. You know, I felt a couple weeks ago a need to surrender that situation. And that is because I was sending updates, I was getting text messages, encouraging messages, prayer requests, all this stuff while this was going on. And I know through the power of the Holy Spirit that people were praying a prayer that I would have find peace and that my awareness of the boat I was stuck in would be raised. And I might have been stuck if it wasn't for people praying and for the help that I had received. And ultimately, becoming aware of the boat you're in is the first step in being able to get out of it. Because if you don't know what's stuck, what's holding you back, what storm you're caught in, you're never going to be able to leave it until you name it. And having somebody be able to help you through that, to raise your level of awareness of what you're stuck in, is so, so critical and so, so powerful. And now, once you have your boat, and once you understand, oh, this is something I need to surrender, let go of, get out of, and you do, what does that do for you? How does that radically change your world? What would your life now look like? Would your relationships actually in your life become healthier and better, and your family dynamics actually improve? Would your stress levels at work all of a sudden be able to go down because it no longer has the weight of the world on it? Would you become excited every day for what God's going to do in you because you know he's going to start doing amazing things then through you? Now, as a church, let me ask this question together. You know, as a church family, as a community, we actually need to ask this question. If Peter got out of a boat, what do we need to get out of? What does that look like when a church does that? We saw the Israelites together as a group make a decision. What does that look like as a church when we do that? And now, if you've been paying attention the past couple of weeks, you know Pastor John has mentioned the things that are coming. So I'm just going to go over them real quick to continue to paint that picture of the big boat we're actually trying to get out of as a church. I mean, the first one we're trying to do as a church is actually this building. We're looking at leaving this building and moving into town. We have an awesome team working on that. 
And our goal is to get closer to neighborhoods, bus lines, uh, where we can be closer to elbow to elbow with people. And that also will allow us to get out of finan- like financially free us from debt and give us more ministry opportunities. It's really exciting. Another big change that's coming, and it's no secret, Pastor John is really old. I th- yeah, I think he still remembers the dinosaurs walking around. I mean, uh, but, you know, he, he sees the off-ramp coming in the not-too-far distance. He knows it's happening. And so we're going to have a new head pastor coming. And we're ex- I would ask you to be in prayer about this, because he's out there somewhere, uh, and he is having God work in his life. So God's going to do things through him. And we are so excited to meet him. So I, would you just be in prayer for him and prayer that we'd be able to find him and start building that relationship. And then the third thing is something called change is really coming to our church model. Now, that doesn't mean we're changing what we believe in the doctrine. It simply means we're changing the way we give the message of hope of Jesus, really, to uh, live with... Um, it really means changing the message on how we live it and how we send it and how we communicate it to people. That's really it. It means we're going to become a lot more focused on the rest of the week. We're excited about what God's doing in our day-to-day and not just on Sunday. And that Sunday would actually just be a celebration of all the goodness and the good things God did all week. It's become a lot more missional focused. We're going to be a lot more focused on going towards people than inviting them to come here. We're going to go to where they already are and meet them where they are at. You know, this is going to really affect my life, and it's going to really affect your life if you choose to come with us as we find out what God has for us. You know, that's a, I mean, this is a huge, like, major risky decision that we're facing as a church. But just like the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, uh, to, we had to make a choice, step into this one by one, one at a time. And also like the Israelites, we're going to give glory to God at the end because without him, we would surely far, fall apart. Now, thankfully, we can start small, one individual at a time, about what boat do I need to get out of. And when a group of us start asking that question and obeying, don't become surprised when we become a church of water walkers. It's going to be awesome. So why don't we actually take a moment? We're just going to take a few minutes and be quiet and ask that question to God. What boat do I need to get out of? Does it feel kind of uneasy in this room now? There's some big things coming this way for your, in your life. There's some conversations you're going to need to start having with people about this, with your spouse, with your family, with your close friends, because God wants to do work in your life so he can do powerful things through it. Um, so I want to end with an encouraging word, because what you're facing, what's coming next is going to be is intimidating. It's going to be hard. It's going to be heavy on your life as you continue to pursue this and surrender this to God. So I want to end, I'm going to give you guys an encouraging word. 
And this actually comes out of a really cool conversation between a father and a son that we find this in First Chronicles. King David is an old man by now. He's lived his full life. He's killed the giant, become king, and you know, won his wars, and he's sung his psalms, and done that, and now his life's towards an end. But there was still one more thing he wanted to do, and that was build a temple for God. And God said it wasn't for him to build, but for his son, Solomon. So this legendary king, this hero of the Bible, who we can talk about all the time, what a great man of God he was, is talking to his son, who's going to take on this next task in front of him. And so I want you to listen for the heart of the father and the encouragement he gives him as he's about to really take inherit this big kingdom and inherit this mission that really came from God and the daunting task in front of him. This is so, so powerful. First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 20. David also said to Solomon, his son, be strong and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. You guys, Peter got out of a boat. Now you're going to be able to get out of something to go be where Jesus is. Jesus told Peter when he was out in the water to come. Jesus is calling and saying the same thing to you. Come, come join me where I'm at. That is the invitation he has for me. That's the invitation he has for you and the invitation he has for us as a church. Would you pray with me real quick? Dear Holy Father, you are the God of David. You were the God of Solomon. And you never left them, Lord. And you are the God of this church. You are our God, Lord. And you will never leave us nor forsake us, Lord. And you are calling us uh, to places that are stormy, that are uneasy, and where uh, we don't want to go, Lord, but that's where you are. That's where you are calling us. That's where you are meeting us, Lord, in our midst, Lord. And I pray that we would be able to find you. We'd be able to go be with you, Lord, and that we'd be able to give you the glory uh, as we walk uh, on water, Lord, towards you, and that we would continue to take uh, steps of faith, Lord, and of risk. And I pray for every individual here that you'd be able to speak to their hearts and to their minds, Lord, of what you have for them. I pray that you would do powerful and amazing things in their life, that your love would overwhelm them, Lord, that your grace would be poured out uh, in them, Lord. And I pray that you would bring uh, just healing in their brokenness. I pray that you would bring uh, just an energy, Lord, and a focus on uh, just how mighty and how awesome of a God we serve and that your uh, plan and your purpose for us is so greater and better than anything we could ever imagine. We love you, God. We want to give you all the glory and the praise and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.